Good morning. Gee, what a doozy of a passage, isn't it, this one? It's pretty tricky. Um, And thanks, Andrew, for rostering me on for this one, um, which many commentators agree is the most difficult parable in the New Testament. So um, get ready to do some hard work this morning. But we have to recognise Jesus did have a teaching to bring, and he chose this particular way of saying it. So we can't just bypass it because it's too hard. And as I've been sitting in this passage for a couple of weeks, I've actually discovered some amazing things in here that I hadn't seen before. So um, I hope that you're kind of, you've got your taste buds kind of, you know, they're ready to kind of see what what God's got in store for us this morning. Um, Now, if you've travelled internationally, uh, you know how important it is to have the currency of the country that you're visiting in cash and on hand. It's like the first thing that you do once you've arrived. You get your currency exchanged. If you don't have it, you're kind of stuffed, really. Um, (laughs) Because you need that currency, you need that kind of money in that country um, to not only have a good time, but to survive. You need it to be able to buy food and and get around. And you need it to do the things that you want to do. So in this passage today, I think Jesus is highlighting something about the currency of his kingdom that his followers are going to need. Like a foreign currency, if you don't have it, you can't live or function in this place. What if you're a Christian and you think you're living in God's kingdom, but you've never got your currency exchanged or never realised you needed to? All right, so we're going to go through the text. We're going to go to verse 1. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So basically this manager was someone like a steward or an executive manager, if you like. He had the role of managing a rich man's business. And he was a bit shady. He was up to something dodgy. We don't know what the details are of what that was about, but um, maybe if you work in corporate finance, you might be able to imagine some of the dodgy things that go on be closed door, behind closed doors. Um, most of us probably assume that he was taking some of his boss's income and keeping it for himself. But the way Jesus describes it was that he was wasting or squandering his boss's possessions. And it's the same Greek word for squandered that he used to describe um, the actions of the prodigal son back in chapter 15. So he was spending his boss's money foolishly and for no real reason other than for his own pleasure, we assume. And so we've got that story of the prodigal son sitting in the back of our minds now as well. And his boss finds out what he's been up to. He's busted, big time. (laughs) It's like the CEO of a multinational being caught out and brought to account by the board. And so in verse 2, his boss calls him in and he says, I know what shady things you've been up to. I know that you've been mismanaging my business for personal gain and I can't trust you anymore. So you're out, you're fired. Now, I don't know um, if anyone's been fired from such a sort of position like that. I've certainly not been fired um, and certainly not from a high-flying white-collar job like that, but I can imagine the kind of intense humiliation and disgrace that comes with it. He knows that his reputation would be tarnished forever because of this and that he'd never be accepted in his business world ever again. 
So in verse 3, he says to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job and I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm too ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. A couple of things to notice. He's fired, but it seems like he's got a bit of time to wrap up his affairs and maybe um, hand over, get ready to hand over to someone else. So he's got time to sort of weigh up his options a little bit and, and figure out what, what is he going to do. What will he do to try and get out of this impending personal crisis? He's not up for physical labour and he's too ashamed to beg, but he's trying to hold on to any sort of dignity that he's got left. He's trying to salvage as much of his reputation as he can before word gets out. Because if word gets out, he can forget it. He'd never have a reputable job again. So he's trying to come up with something that will save his name and prevent complete public disgrace. How's he going to figure this one out? And then in verse 5, what the dishonest manager comes up with is astonishing, really. He basically wipes off significant chunks of debt that other people and other businesses owe to his boss. He halves the debt of olive oil that one man owes and he wipes off a fifth of wheat that another man owes. To give you an idea of how much money that equates to, apparently we're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars equivalent, basically. Hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt being cancelled just wiped out. So we think, hang on, isn't he again being dodgy by wiping off so much money that's owed to his boss? He's not acting in a way that saves his boss any money, but again is acting in a way that causes even more financial loss to his boss. And this is when we read the shocking response of the boss in verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager, because he had acted shrewdly. This isn't what we expect, is it? (laughs) What's this about? How on earth do we make sense of this? Somehow, this dishonest manager has actually succeeded in securing his and his boss's reputation. And through shrewdness, through cleverness and quick action, And while we may not get it, what if there's another currency going on here? One that we can't immediately see. What if there's a currency that this shady, dodgy manager knows is a currency that his boss trades in? A currency of generosity. A currency of grace. Because when I read of these debts being reduced so much, I remembered um, Jesus' parable um, of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, 23 to 35, where the master cancelled a ridiculously absurd amount of debt that was owed to him with two, way too many zeros than I can get my head around because his servant begged and pleaded for more time so that he could pay it back. Maybe there's something about generosity that we don't understand very well in our culture. But in their culture, they understood something about the power and the grace of generosity. In the culture of that business world, 
generosity was highly respected. In fact, as opposed to how our culture espouses the desperate accrual of wealth by any means, in their culture, generosity was a sign that you are favoured by God. Generosity brought you respect. And their business associates see it. The shrewd manager might actually have future prospects in this community and the boss, the rich man, comes out of this with an even better reputation than before. Now here's where the text gets a bit more weird though. In the second half of verse 8, Jesus says, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So on the back of that parable, Jesus is kind of saying that the people of the world, the people out there, are doing something better than his own people in terms of how they look out for one another. He's saying that God's children who have eternal treasure and a heavenly home should be as diligent in generosity for the sake of others as those who don't know God are in protecting their earthly well-being. He's saying there's something seriously wrong with God's people because even non-believers are more generous towards others than we are. Because if there's another currency operating in the kingdom of God, then why do we hold so tightly to money? If we're liberated people not tied down to the sin of greed or the idolatry of wealth, why don't we give our money away more freely for the sake of the kingdom? If it's not the be-all and end-all of life, why do we hold so tightly to it as if it's ours when it's actually not? In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul says, What do you have that you did not receive? Jesus wants his people to step up in generosity. When was the last time you gave money to a fellow Christian who was in need? When was the last time you offered to pay the bill for a friend at a restaurant because you know that they're not as well off as you? Or when was the last time you invited a single income family over for a meal just to bless them? You know, there are Families and single people and elderly people in need around us where money is tight. And with the way the economy is going, it's going to get harder and worse for a lot more people. How can we, the church, have our eyes open and our hearts open and ready to respond to those needs? And verse 9 reinforces this with the exhortation to use worldly wealth to gain friends for the sake of the kingdom. To put it simply, be generous friends in order to win people to Christ. Generosity is a missional tool. Be generous with what you earn in this world to gain friends for eternity. I think Christians have underplayed the necessity of generosity in our discipleship. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, he says that generosity is the focal point of God's moral perfection. It is the quality that determines how all God's other excellencies are to be displayed. Generosity is the focal point 
of God's moral perfection. He's saying that if you want to understand how perfect God is, just look at his generosity. Jesus in this passage is trying to get us to see that God loves his debtors. He loves the ones who have shafted him, the ones who have robbed him, the ones who have defied him, and he wants to save them. God's plan for the world is for people to get what they don't deserve, to have their debts of sin cancelled. This is grace. This is scandalous grace. And you know what? To those of us who have had that debt wiped out, God opens up his account to us like giving us his credit card and his PIN number, and he says, go for it. All my grace for you to give away, this is our mission, to give away freely what's not even ours. And this is why Jesus is making this point so strongly, I think. If we see the beautiful, scandalous grace through God's generosity, then maybe our world we'll see God's grace through our generosity too. And then in verse 10, to make the point even clearer, he says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest or unjust with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Verse 13, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I think we get this. I think we understand what Jesus is saying here. Choose who you will be faithful to. Choose the kingdom that you want to belong to. Choose the currency that you want to operate with. Choose your treasure because you can't have it both ways. When we receive the gospel and enter the way of Jesus, we exchange our currency from money to the currency of grace where the method of payment is no longer cash or card but generosity. Jesus' followers need to make a choice. Earlier this year, um, I went to a, a women's leadership training day and we were asked to reflect on the question, how is God calling you forward as a leader? Now, part of me wanted to buy into an idea that I could really be someone, that I could become a leader who's well-known and influential across the Diocese of Melbourne, that I could be a leader who's heading up new and important things in the Christian world. I think leadership days tend to conjure up that in people, these high-flying dreams of greatness. But anyway, as we were preparing our hearts in worship, before the teaching and before this question was put to us, I had this really beautiful encounter with God where I just felt incredibly grateful for the lives that he had entrusted to me. For my kids, for the people that I pastor and have the privilege to be walking alongside. And I had in that moment a very clear awareness of how precious each of these lives and souls are. 
was like God was shining a light upon my ordinary life as a minister here in the hills to encourage me to continue to be faithful um, in these relationships and these responsibilities. For though to some they might seem like little things compared to a fancy role or, you know, nice title, these are the areas of responsibility that God has called me to be careful and diligent and faithful with. These are the souls that he has entrusted to me now. This is the leadership that God has entrusted me with now, that he wants me to steward wisely. And it's enough to just be faithful with this, to be faithful in the little things. So many times we reach for more, in our careers and in our lifestyle aspirations especially. We long to have the big, good life, We long to be known and regarded in our field of work. And these aspirations often lead us to overlook and neglect the little things in our lives, the seemingly smaller areas of responsibility. But these little things are the things that God calls us to be faithful with. This is the upside-downness of the kingdom of God. And it's how you handle and manage the little things that shows the true state of your character. And this is what stewardship is about. And God wants to know that he can trust you with that so that he can entrust you with more. Because he's got bigger things for us if we can handle it. He's got true riches that he wants to entrust to us. And this awareness in that moment of worship made me realise that the true riches that Jesus talks about aren't necessarily the treasures in heaven in the future that we might often immediately think of, although it might include that. But I actually think our true riches are the souls of the lives around us. What if Jesus wants to entrust to you the care of a broken woman trapped in a violent relationship? Or a survivor of trauma who God wants you to walk alongside gently and patiently with constant compassion and faithful prayer? What if our true riches are the lives and souls of the vulnerable and needy people around us? The grieving widow or orphan, the child who's been abused or neglected, the disabled friend who needs help, those struggling with mental illness, those approaching death, the lost sheep that God has just brought back to his flock, the prodigal son who has just returned home. And I think the Apostle Paul talks about true riches in this way as well. Listen to what he says to the church in Thessalonica. He says, For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? His true riches were his people, the people that he had brought to faith and equipped for life in the kingdom. Think about who and what God has entrusted to you now in this season of your life, whether that's money or kids or a spouse or friends or a business or a small group, or a role of leadership? How are you doing in being faithful with these? 
And maybe you're listening and thinking, gosh, I've stuffed up. <laughs> like the dishonest manager who was brought to account, maybe you've neglected the areas of responsibility that God has given you in the relationships and gifts and opportunities that he's given you. Maybe somehow you've squandered those gifts or made a mess of your life or neglected those relationships. Jesus is giving you the opportunity to deal with this. The good news is that Jesus can cancel the debt of your sin. No matter how long it's been accruing, gone like it never even existed. He paid the price for that debt in giving his life for you on the cross. The debt has been paid. And if you're willing to turn around, his account of grace is fully open to you today. You can choose to do things differently. You can choose to say, God, I want to be a person you can trust again. And you can act on that. Do something today, this week, that deals in the currency of grace, that expresses generosity. Generosity of heart, of time, of money, of whatever it is. And for all of us, what does it mean for us to learn and live out the currency of God's kingdom? What steps towards radical generosity do you need to take so that you can represent the generous nature of God to our world lost in tight-fisted selfishness and greed? And not just in your financial giving, but in the way you give with your life for the sake of those true riches that God wants to entrust to you? What does it mean for you to become a faithful, generous steward who is entrusted with true riches? Let me pray for us now. Jesus, forgive us for not getting the currency of your kingdom. Forgive us for not seeing it, for not understanding your profound generosity and grace. And if we haven't seen it, we haven't been dealing in it, you hold out your account of grace fully open to us so that we can just give it away freely. Help us to get this. Help us to understand how generous you are towards us so that we can be so generous towards others. Help us to be faithful stewards of your scandalous grace and to be generous people so that we might be trusted with your true riches and win friends for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.